Welcome to this week's podcast, Building Blocks of the Indian Economy. I'm your host, Amar Meni. In previous weeks, we have looked at how we grow the food to fill our stomachs, the fiber to clothe ourselves, and how we make the buildings which we live and work in. Now, I would like to look inwards, into both our bodies and minds. What do I mean, body and mind? Am I sounding like a yogi? What has body and mind got to do with economics? Well, you've probably heard of the famous American economist, Milton Friedman. He was a pioneer of monetary economics at the University of Chicago, went on to win a Nobel Prize, and was extremely influential in changing the course of government policies around the world in the 1970s and 1980s. His basic idea was that excessive government spending did more harm than good, that governments were better off managing the money supply. Well, before he became quite so famous, he came to India. Yes, way back in the mid-1950s, he spent several months in India in a not very successful attempt to influence Indian economic planning. But before leaving, he recorded his thoughts in the form of a note to the government of India. He suggested that the government of India, basically Jawaharlal Nehru and Prasanta Mahalanobas, were a little bit obsessed with trying to increase India's stock of industrial capital, that is, machinery. Whilst what they should have been focusing on was India's human capital, investing in its people in the form of health and education. He gave the example of his own country, the United States, making the point that the vast store of America's prosperity was not in its machines, but in its people. And also Japan, which just 10 years earlier had been bombed back to the Stone Age, but in short time was becoming the world's most dynamic economy again on account of the skills and enterprise of its people. Now, to play around with his analogy a bit, you could even bomb the United States back into the Stone Age, and as long as the American people survived, they would quickly rebuild America back to prosperity, just as the Japanese were doing. Machinery is very good, no doubt, but ultimately it is people who have to make that machinery work, and so the quality of the people their skills and education, is what is more important. Well, Milton Friedman's suggestions are now just a note in history, not listened to at the time, or since really. But I always remember the American professor whenever I'm in any of the American fast food restaurants in India. See the fitting, the machinery, equipment, the stock of all those shops will be exactly the same in India as in America and just about everywhere in the world. What's different? The only thing that is different is the people. That is, the people who work all that machinery and equipment. You may have noticed that some of these American fast food chains in India have fallen into a state of disrepair over the years, barely able to open on time, unable to run an air conditioning system, unable to serve customers promptly, unable to process payments, why? Well, it can only be the people. That is the only variable in the equation that is different. Whenever things go wrong in these American restaurants in India, I have a little chuckle to myself and remember the economic lesson which Professor Milton Friedman was trying to impart about 70 years ago. Machines are good, 
but it is people who have to work and manage those machines. Do not forget to invest in people. To return to my focus on mind and body, I want to explore India's approach to human capital, that is the education of its people, their minds, and bodies, the provision of healthcare. But we will start with the mind, and then move to the body. Now it is generally the case the world over that the government will be the biggest provider of education in society. Private education will always be there in some measure, often provided by religious or social or cultural groups, and often on a not-for-profit basis. But the heavy lifting needs to be done by the government. And so I want to start with government investment in education in India, particularly primary and secondary education. This will encompass a lot of state spending, because education is largely, but not entirely, a state subject, a state responsibility in India. And so spending and outcomes can vary greatly across the country. Now, a target was set in 1968 for India to spend 6% of its GDP on education. Now, well into the 2020s, however, the target remains elusive. At the moment, governments spend around 3% of GDP on education. Because of this underspending on education, around half of India's children study at poorly equipped underfunded government schools. One million schools, close to a quarter of a billion children. And that, of course, is a big reason that learning outcomes at these schools remain poor. In fact, those outcomes are truly abysmal. Let's take grade two, for example. Less than 10%, less than one in 10, grade two students can read at the grade two level. And even when in grade five, less than half can do so. That is, less than half of grade five children can read at the grade two level. Now, if we look at central government spending on education, it is of two sorts, centrally sponsored schemes and central sector schemes. It's a fine distinction. The Samagra Shiksha Abhiyan is funded 60-40 by the central and state governments but the government takes care of 90% of such funding in the northeastern states. The central sector schemes are completely funded by the central government. Things like scholarships for children of the scheduled castes and tribes, the Novodaya school network in rural areas, and the Kendriya Vidyalaya school system for the children of government employees, as well as the National Council of Education, Research and Training, which, among other things, publishes textbooks. These, of course, make up a tiny fraction of the money spent on education. All of this type of spending will come out of the government's union budget each year, but the bulk of spending will happen in the state capitals. A reasonably industrialized and economically dynamic state like Maharashtra will fund 90% of its own education budget, whilst a less dynamic one like Bihar only about 40 to 50%. It is much more reliant on the central government. But then the statistics get quite interesting. See, Bihar, as a relatively small economy, actually spends more as a proportion of its GDP on education, over 4%, whereas the bigger economies of Maharashtra and Tamil Nadu spend a much smaller share, 
less than 2%. You can also measure how much each state is spending as a share of its budget or total spending, often around 10%. But a better measure is how much each state is spending per student. Yes, how many rupees are on the head of each student studying in the state. And this is quite revealing. By far and away, the best funded little students in all of India are found in Himachal Pradesh. Yes, the state government of Himachal Pradesh, prior to the pandemic, was spending about 60,000 rupees per student each year. A long way behind came Tamil Nadu at a bit under 40,000 rupees. Bihar spent less than 10,000 rupees per student. Total spending by state and central governments has been steadily rising over the past decade, but only in line with the growth of the economy, not more. It remains at about 10% of government budgets and at around 3% of GDP. The centre puts around 60% of its investment into primary and secondary schools and about 40% into university education. And of all the money spent on education in India, the central government only accounts for 15%. The other 85% is spent by the states. Of all that state funding, the largest chunk goes to funding teacher salaries. But across the states, teacher vacancies are not being filled for want of more funding. And precious little money is spent on teacher training. Besides investment in school buildings and equipment, one needs to invest in the teachers. If you study the accounts closely, you'll notice that states provide most of the funding for teacher salaries, but it is most often that the central government has to come in and spend on teacher training through its central schemes. Often the state will spend just 1% of its budget on teacher training. In Tamil Nadu, prior to the pandemic, it was 0%. It is usually the central government which fills the gaps in providing the physical infrastructure for schools as well as scholarships for students. Similarly, monitoring and inspection of schools regularly makes up 1% and 0% of state education budgets. But here the central government does not always step in and save the day. So many schools remain unmonitored, unchecked, and the outcomes? Are predictable. Now all that being said, according to economic modeling across the states, just about every state, barring exceptions like Tamil Nadu, is spending less than what is required for a functioning education system. That is, enough teachers and enough rooms and reasonable class sizes. At one extreme, Bihar needs almost double the number of classrooms, and again double the number of teachers. It needs to triple that amount that it spends per child from just about 5,000 rupees to around 18,000 rupees. Every single state needs more teachers. Even a southern state like Karnataka only has less than 70% of the requirement. And the figure is similar in Uttar Pradesh in the north. Now this is where that percentage of GDP figure comes in for relatively big economies like Karnataka it might only take an increase in expenditure of just 1% of its GDP to close the funding gap and build all those new classrooms and pay all those new teachers. 
just 1% of GDP. States, since the tax-sharing reforms of 2015, now also receive a bigger share and have more discretion as to how they spend their money. So it really is a matter of political will and priorities in the state capitals. But when we look around the world, it does make me question whether it is a matter of how much we are spending or how we are spending those rupees. See, if we compare our education spending with China, surprisingly, China does not spend much more than India as a percentage of its GDP, maybe about half a percent more, 3.5% rather than India's 3%. Now, obviously, China is a much bigger economy, so it is spending a much larger amount in total, but the proportions are similar for each economy. Yet, the education outcomes are so much better in China, in terms of literacy, comprehension, numeracy, the retention of students. That does pose the question, if India did suddenly raise its investment from 3% of GDP spent on education to the magical 6%, would the results reward all that extra spending? Well, I would suggest that we look inside the account books and, as I have pointed out, look at all the underinvestment in teacher training and school inspections and monitoring by the state governments. Might the answer lie there? Remember those figures. 1%, 0% spent on teacher training? If money was spent on everything else, classrooms, scholarships, equipment, teacher salaries, and the teacher training figure remained at 0% or 1%, I would argue that doubling spending on education would make little difference. We need to educate our teachers. Only then can they educate the students.